Our text this morning will be in the book of Ephesians. I'd invite you to join me there if you have a copy of God's Word. As Jesus met with his disciples in the upper room and gave them a final charge, you will remember that he charged them to wash one another's feet. Their love for each other would be their calling card, the the proof that they were truly followers of Jesus. Jesus made the connection for them between their love for him and their love for one another. Paul, here in the book of Ephesians, unpacks that command, uh, urging us to Uh, be characterized by God's love, by the love of Jesus, our Savior. We're continuing our Route 66 series, Road Trip Through the Bible, um, looking at all 66 books of the Bible in a calendar year. So we are not getting into the the, the tall grass off to the side, but staying on the the main road, uh, trying to get that big picture perspective of uh, what God is doing in Uh, revealing his great redemptive plan. God created the world in perfection, um, and the world was plunged into death because of human sin and rebellion. But God promised to send a deliverer to make things right. And in the fullness of time, God accomplished and fulfilled that promise in an unthinkable way. God sent his own son into the world to be our deliverer, to rescue us. Jesus, the son of God, took on humanity and died to pay the penalty that our sin deserved. This is the gospel. This is the good news that we can be made right once again with our creator. And God has called out a people for his name uh, to make that good news known throughout the world. So as we consider uh, uh, the unfolding of God's plan, we are in this little blue set of books on the bottom shelf uh, where we are encountering Paul's letters written to the churches uh, of the first century. He wanted them to be grounded in the gospel, to understand this good news fully. He wanted to safeguard the gospel against very present false teaching in the early church. And he wanted them to respond well to the gospel. He wanted them to know how to live in light of the gospel. Now as we've looked at these letters, we've considered Romans and 1st and 2nd Corinthians and Galatians, and now today in Ephesians, we've noted that behind each of these letters there's a backstory. There's a specific set of events and circumstances that provide the, the context for the letter. And certainly that is true here for the church in Ephesus. We want to just uh, spend a few minutes kind of orienting ourselves and entering into the story. Uh, Ephesus was the chief port and the capital city of Asia Minor. Now, Asia Minor is not terminology that we would normally use, so that might not help us find uh, Ephesus on the world map. Uh, 
Asia Minor would be that area to the far west of Asia, the, the, the western tip of Asia where Asia meets Europe. Okay, so this is a significant place in the world, obviously, sort of the connection point between a couple of continents. And uh, Ephesus was the main city in this region. Matter of fact, Ephesus was the second largest city in the world next to Rome. So it was a place of very strategic importance. Paul consistently took the gospel to major cultural centers. And it seems that his philosophy of ministry, his strategy was to bring the gospel to a place from which it could be easily disseminated and carried out into the surrounding areas. Ephesus was one of those places of influence. Ephesus was also home to the temple of Artemis. Artemis was the goddess of wild animals and the hunt, uh, typically depicted uh, alongside of uh, uh, a stag or something like that. And here she's got the arrows slung over her back. Uh, She's got her her garments kind of drawn up so she can run, right? This is sort of the picture of, of Artemis. Uh, she was uh, sort of a free-spirited being who, who hung out in the mountains and the woods. Uh, to the Romans, Artemis was known by the name Diana. And if it helps you lock this in, Wonder Woman. Yes, that Wonder Woman is named after the Greek goddess Diana. Her temple was here in Ephesus, and it was considered one of the seven wonders of the world. I mean, it was an amazing uh, feat of architecture, as well as a thing of beauty. Uh, It was uh, longer and wider than a football field, 127 pillars that held up the roof, and each of those pillars was 60 feet in height. I mean, think about how that was constructed in the ancient world without a crane, right? I mean, just an amazing, uh, an amazing place. Took over 220 years to construct. And at the center of this temple was an object that was said to have fallen from the sky, from Jupiter specifically. Uh, so there was, uh, this added to sort of the mystery of the worship of Artemis. We read about this in Acts chapter 19. We get some background on this temple. Uh, Paul stopped in Ephesus briefly on his second missionary journey. He couldn't stay long, but he preached in the synagogue to the, the Jewish background people, and he presented to them Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures the promised Messiah. He left Priscilla and Aquila with them. Priscilla and Aquila were fellow believers, um, and and they helped to sort of do some teaching there in Ephesus in Paul's absence, helping to disciple some of these, this little cluster of new believers. Apollos, uh, also a gifted teacher, spent time in Ephesus as well. Uh, And then Paul uh, spent three years in Ephesus uh, on his third missionary journey uh, and established a diverse church. So this was the longest period of time that he spent in any one city. Clearly, this was a strategic place and a strategic church. 
Now, the earliest believers were of a Jewish background. So I mentioned that when Paul first went to Ephesus, he, he taught in the synagogues. This was his normal pattern. He went to people who uh, already had a familiarity with the Old Testament scriptures, the Jewish people, and he began there. But of course, uh, there were many Gentile uh, people, non-Jewish people, who also uh, turned to Christ. And we, we read, if we were to go back, the account of this is in Acts chapter 19. If we were to go back and look at that, we'd see that uh, this was kind of a sordid group. You know, I mean, some of them actually, a, a pretty large contingent of these new believers were involved in witchcraft. Um, matter of fact, we, re, we, we see their conversion experience and, and the validity of their conversion experience because they burned their scrolls, all the scrolls that had to do with sorcery and magic uh, valued at well over a million dollars in today's currency, they burned them. I mean, they, they, they truly had formed a new allegiance to Jesus Christ. Uh, so, so that's sort of one group there of, of Gentile people that came to faith in Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, so many Gentiles responded to the gospel that Paul found himself embroiled in controversy. The local economy in Ephesus was driven by religious tourism, right? People coming to see this magnificent temple to Artemis. And the local uh, artisans would shape little statues, uh, trinkets that could be sold to those who were visiting the city. And so many people had turned away from idol worship that it began to impact the local economy. And people began to be very upset with Paul and his colleagues, and a riot broke out there in the city. But you can only imagine the kinds of uh, dynamics that came from this sort of diversity. I mean, in other words, you have these observant Jewish people who grew up uh, observing the law of Moses, they uh, were, were steeped in religious tradition, and then you have a bunch of idol worshipers, former idol worshipers, magicians and witches uh, who find themselves now part of the church. What a, a, a melting pot. And, and the point is that these people brought baggage. They, they needed encouragement and coaching to live as the unified people of God. This is, this is one of the main purposes for which Paul writes this letter is to draw them together in Christian unity. When Paul returned from his third missionary journey, he arranged to meet with the elders of the church in Ephesus in order to warn them about false teachers. Uh, this, too, I think just gives a unique snapshot as to the nature of Paul's relationship with this church. Uh, he had spent three years there. He went on, continued on serving in other places. On his return trip, he, he knew he couldn't he knew he couldn't go to Ephesus because he would get caught and he was in a hurry. That tells you something about the nature of his relationship, right? He just knew he wouldn't be able to break away if he went there. So he made arrangements to have the, the elders of the church in Ephesus come and meet him at another location. And they had a little leadership retreat. And Paul kind of walked through some things. He had heard about some, some false teaching that was threatening the church. And, and Paul wanted to further invest in these leaders. And when you get to the end of that, in Acts chapter 20, there was a very tearful goodbye as Paul departed because they knew they would not see each other again. So 
Paul had that kind of a relationship with this church. Upon arriving back in Jerusalem, so he completes that, that third missionary journey, he says goodbye to the people in Ephesus, he goes back to Jerusalem, he is arrested. And he eventually is taken to Rome, uh, where he would write this letter to the believers in Ephesus. So Paul makes several references here to his imprisonment or to the fact that he was in chains. And uh, this is one of, of what are called Paul's prison epistles. Uh, the letter was, a, was carried by a man named Tychicus. We're told about this at the very end of the letter. Um, and we also know that Tychicus carried a letter to the church in Colossae. So Paul apparently wrote a couple of letters, and, and Colossae and Ephesus are about 100 miles apart, so Tychicus was traveling among these cities. You don't think about it, but you, you don't just shoot off the email, right, or drop it in an overnight uh, parcel post, you know, or something. You, you, you not only have to go to the expense of, of obtaining papyrus and... and uh, recording the, the letter, but then you've got to figure out how you're going to get it to a city that's hundreds of miles away. So this, too, all expresses Paul's love for and concern for these believers. Now, if we were to fast forward just a little bit, uh, we, we actually have some information about what happened to the church in Ephesus. Well, the church in Ephesus was known for its love for one another. We're told that. Paul actually cites it. This church had a reputation for loving one another. While the church in Ephesus was known for its love for one another, they later abandoned the love that they had at first and settled into a cold orthodoxy. So actually we have a letter written to the church in Ephesus from Jesus himself. And the church is commended for its its. It's orthodoxy. They, they taught truth. They were committed to truth. They, they recognized false teaching a mile away. And they were given to moral, upright behavior, but they had lost the love that they had at first. And I think that's a cautionary tale. I mean, the, the longer we've been believers, uh, the more we can sort of lose sight of uh, the importance of love in the context of, of God's people. So, so that's a little bit of the, the, the back story. Um, I want to summarize the message of the book, uh, the letter, with this uh, sentence. God has adopted us into his family and expects us to live as his children. I think we could break the book down to this, okay? And uh, there, there's two main parts to the book. Um, chapters 1 through 3, Paul describes our calling. And then in chapters 4 through 6, Paul urges us to live up to that calling. In other words, Paul focuses on what God has done, and then he wants us to consider our response to what God has done in the final chapters. So God has adopted us into his family, and he expects us to live as his children, all right? So that's going to be our, our two-part outline here this morning as we walk through Paul's letter to the believers in Ephesus. So we've been adopted into God's family. This is Paul's focus at the outset of the book. And he begins with a song of 
praise. Song of praise, verses 3 through 14. Uh, let's pick up in Ephesians 1, 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So Paul just sort of bursts out into song as he considers all that God has done for us through Christ. Um, you can't miss the, the language of adoption and family here. Uh, th- this is really what Paul is celebrating. And he, and he focuses on the work of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father authored the work of adoption, verses 3 through 6. He planned it out. He chose us and predestined us for adoption, and he did so before the creation of the world. Right? A child, in an adoption situation, a child does not choose his or her parents. The parents choose the child. Right? This, is, this is how it works. You, you ch- chose God only because God first chose you and called you to himself. And so Paul celebrates this, um, the, 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 the divine initiative of God in uh, choosing and purposing to adopt us into his family. So the father authored the work of adoption. The son accomplished the work of adoption. Verses 7 through 12 focus on Jesus. Uh, and and uh, we, we were estranged from God because of our sin, but Jesus stepped in, paid our debt with his blood. Uh, he paid the penalty that our sin deserved so that we could be reconciled to God. Notice how this is described in chapter 1, verse 10 to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. So in some sense, Christ uh, bridges the gap, the chasm between heaven and earth, the barrier that existed there. And Christ brings unity between God and humanity uh, that, that, that is accomplished in his work on the cross as we read about in the various creeds already this morning. The great work of justification. And then we have a, a, a word of praise directed to the work of the Holy Spirit who applied the work of adoption. Uh, verses 13 and 14. Uh, the Holy Spirit, we're told, is the seal of our salvation. In the ancient world, uh, a, a royal person would have a seal that would be able to, to be impressed into the wax and, and leave the imprint, the, the authorization that this correspondence is from them. Right? At, at different points, this word is also used to describe branding, where uh, an animal is actually burned with a certain uh, logo right, that would identify them with their owner. Uh, this is the, these are the kinds of imageries we have been marked out as God's people, authorized. The notary has come and stamped it, right? The, uh, the, that great moment in the courtroom when, when uh, so many of our families have walked through that with adoption and, and that child is placed into that forever family and the, and the judge hits the gavel and, and makes the declaration, right? This is the, the, the paperwork is done. The steadiness to our relationship with God, it's, 
It's not based on an emotion. It is an accomplished fact. It is completely done, as we sang about already this morning. He also talks about here that the, fa- the, the fact that the Spirit is the deposit of our future inheritance. Again, this is family terminology. We've been adopted into God's family with all the rights and privileges of a son or daughter of God, including inheritance. And the Spirit uh, is the down payment of what is to come for the children of God. So, uh, and again, after each uh, uh, word of praise, Paul says, for the praise of God's glory, right? Uh, God is the center of this story. It's, it's, this is about what he has done, not about what we have done. All praise and glory and honor goes to him. So this is how Paul starts as he thinks about all that God has done in adopting us. And then there's a prayer for a growing knowledge of God. Paul just stops to pray. Uh, He expresses thanks to God for these believers. And then he offers a singular request that they would know God better. And he teases that out. He wants them to know the hope to which God has called them, the riches of their glorious inheritance, and God's incomparably great power on behalf of those who believe. Here's my paraphrase. Paul says... I pray that you will come to understand all that you have in Christ. You've been adopted into God's family with all the rights and privileges that come with it. I pray that you'd come to understand that. I pray that it would be deeply impressed and embedded on your mind, on your heart. Remembering where you came from. To help them appreciate their many blessings, Paul reminds them and us of our desperate and hopeless condition apart from Christ. This is the text that Jeremy read for us this morning. We, uh, in, in Ephesians chapter 2, we were spiritually dead. We were slaves to Satan. We were slaves to our own selfish and destructive desires. We were deserving, rightfully deserving of God's wrath and judgment because of our sin. But he has raised us from the dead. This was all by grace. Grace alone, through faith alone. Great declaration there, those familiar verses in chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And even into verse 10, for we are God's handiwork, right? Some translations say we are God's work of art. This is about what God is doing, not about what we have done or what we have earned or what we have merited, but it's about the free grace of God operative on our behalf. Paul does frame for us the place of good works in the life of the Christian. Do you see it there in verse 10? For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. So we don't do those good works in order to be saved. We do those good works because we have been saved. Right? This is 
the response of a grateful heart. Paul then unpacks adoption implications uh, in verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Paul seems to get on a rabbit trail here. He starts talking about Jew and Gentile issues and dynamics, and we might think, what does this have to do with our salvation? And that's because many of us have come to think of our salvation in individualistic terms. It's about you and Jesus, but it's not just about you and Jesus. Uh, God has adopted other siblings into the family. Surprise! Right? I'm an only child. I never had to share a bedroom, but... There are no only children in God's family, right? There are many other siblings. And Paul teases out the fact that you not only have a new father, but you have a new family. Um, Previously, there had been very real barriers between Jew and Gentile. Matter of fact, in the the, the temple complex there in Jerusalem, there was what was called the Court of the Gentiles. And that was as far as the Gentiles could get to the Holy of Holies. Matter of fact, there was a physical barrier, a wall, that separated them from the Jewish inner portion of the temple. And Paul here uh, addresses that issue and says that Jesus has... Uh, in, in Christ, that wall has been removed so that Jew and Gentile now are both uh, included and welcomed into the family of God. Uh, Paul sums it up here at the end of chapter 2, verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone in him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So Paul wants them to understand that there's something corporate going on in all of this. That, uh, yes, we've, again, uh, been welcomed into God's family. He is our father, but we have now been made members of his household, right? And he he uses another metaphor here of of, of a building, a temple that's being built together, brick by brick, uh, a temple in which God will dwell by his spirit. So uh, Paul's emphasizing the corporate nature of what God is doing in the church. Chapter 3, we have the unveiling of the mystery. The unveiling of the mystery. Paul reflects on the significance of Gentiles being included uh, along with Jews in the household of God. What is going on here? Uh, Paul reflects on this. Chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles... Uh, In other words, Paul says, I'm in prison because I'm committed to bringing the the good news to you non-Jewish people, right? Verse 2, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation as I have already written briefly. In reading this then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. 
This mystery, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. So this, this whole Jew-Gentile uh, union was stunning and shocking. Uh, Paul uses this terminology of a mystery. Uh, we might think, we usually think of a mystery as something that you have to investigate to understand. But in the Bible, a mystery is something that is completely concealed. So in the Bible, mysteries are not solved, they are revealed. You would have never figured it out, right? It was completely concealed to you until the veil was pulled back. And so God has chosen to now pull back the veil and demonstrate what he's doing in bringing Jew and Gentile together in Christ. Paul actually addresses God's purpose in all of this. Notice chapter 3, verse 10, his intent, God's intent, was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. So amazingly, God has determined to unveil his wisdom to the world through the church. God's intending to do something corporately, collectively, in revealing his divine purposes and the reconciling power of the gospel to the world. And we are the, the proof. We're, we're to be the lighthouse, the, 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 the shining example of, of the gospel's power. So if you're disconnected from the church, uh, you're disconnected from God's great redemptive purpose in the world. He's doing something corporately. And in our fractured and hopelessly divided world, there's perhaps never been a greater opportunity for the church to live as the reconciled people of God, to demonstrate the wisdom and power of the gospel. So Paul just kind of steps back and says, what, what is God doing in all this he's adopted us into his family he's brought jew and gentile together in the household of god uh, he's he wants us to be uh this this beacon of hope to a fractured world then he closes here with a prayer for greater love typical jewish posture for prayer was standing but here paul says that he kneels it seems that uh, he is overcome and deeply moved as he reflects on these themes, as he reflects on God's grace. And he prays, I think, very specifically to the Father. Right? Here's our theme. Adoption, inheritance, siblings. And he kneels before the Father of this family. And he prays that believers would grasp the vastness of Christ's love. So that their love, in turn, would overflow toward others. He wants them to just be moved and inspired by, impelled by the love of Christ. And that leads into his section on application. 
right? Where we kind of get the second part of the challenge that we, we've been adopted into God's family and we should live like his children. Here he unpacks the hard work of unity. The hard work of unity. One of the, one of the primary ways that we live up to our calling is to live as the family of God. We, we've been adopted into his family, and we ought to live like it. This is how Paul says it, chapter 4, verse 1, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And he gets into the attitudes that are required to have that kind of unity, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So he he prods them towards humility, having an honest assessment of, of your own strengths and weaknesses and idiosyncrasies. You know, if if you're proud and unteachable and uh, think that you don't have any blind spots, then you're going to have a hard time getting along with others, right? Humility is a key trait. Gentleness. Gentleness is power under control. Not weakness, but power under control. A word used to describe horses who have been broken and trained. They're just as powerful, they're just as fast as they were before they were broken, but now their speed and strength is harnessed. The idea being that we are not to exercise all of our power or claim all of our rights. This is going to be an absolute necessity if we're to have unity, is that we restrain ourselves. Toleration. He talks about bearing with one another. We might say putting up with each other. Here Paul recognizes the the tensions and the the, the, the difficulties of maintaining unity with other sinful people. We're not all the same. We don't have the same convictions. We don't have the same personality types. People just, some people just bug us, right? Or maybe it's just me, I don't know. But this tribalism thing, I've referred to this in the last few weeks, is just killing us. Uh, certainly as a culture, but even as the church, when we hold uh, certain convictions about second-tier issues, and we demand that everyone share our view. This is a killer for unity. We have to, at some level, there's things that we, we, we fight over and we contend over, and they're, 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 they're foundational issues, but there's also a lot of disputable matters, and we need to bear with one another if we're to achieve unity. Paul describes unity here, uh, calls us to unity, to a spirit of unity, but, but not uniformity. Paul does recognize here diversity in the church. I think he actually celebrates it here. He doesn't want us to just be all clones, right? There's room for sparring and debate and pushing back and, 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 and prodding one another on, right? Uh, I think you see this even in chapter 4, verse 7. 
where Paul says, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. So he's talked about our commonality in verses 4 through 6. One body, one hope, one faith, one baptism. But now he speaks of differentiation that each one, each believer, has been gifted uniquely. Christ has given a different portion to each one. But he's given us these gifts uh, so that we will use them for the common good. Right? Paul introduces a very helpful metaphor here, and it's the metaphor of the body. That we are a body comprised of various organs doing various functions. And the body only grows in a healthy way as each part does its work in conjunction, right? In coordination, in perfect harmony. So he calls for unity in the midst of diversity. And that's the trick, isn't it? <laughs> How uh, we, we, we pull that off. But uh, a tremendous exhortation here towards maintaining the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Uh, he describes a, a new creation. Uh, this is uh, the, kind of the largest part of the letter. Uh, we could spend a few weeks on, on this. It's such a rich section. But Paul says you shouldn't live like you used to live. Um, talks about um, language almost of, of, a, of a changing of the clothes. He, he describes that we put on the new self, the new humanity. Again, God's done something new in us. We're not who we used to be. And so Paul says, so you know, you're, you're a new person. Put on some new clothes, as it were. You know, put off the old and put on the new. And he, he focuses there on the, the importance of their mind. He, he, he ties in there the renewing of their mind. You need to, to live and act based on who you are now in Christ. This is the new reality. And you, you need to live in light of that reality. So here he, he gives very practical advice. I mean, before. At the outset, it's kind of attitudes, you know, humility and gentleness and bearing with one another. Now he gets into very specific ways in which we are to live, not for me, but for we. A series of lifestyle shifts. Instead of lying, we should speak truth. Chapter 4, verse 25. So this is the way we used to live. We used to twist the truth for personal advantage, but no, instead of lying, we, we, we now speak the truth. Instead of harboring destructive anger and bitterness, we should seek peace. Chapter 4, verses 26 and 27. Instead of taking from others, looking out for myself, we ought to work so we are in a position to give to others. Instead of gossiping and tearing down others with my speech, we should encourage and build up others with our speech. Instead of seeking revenge, we should extend forgiveness. Coming through a season where there's been a great deal of offense. Unkind words have been spoken, right? Feelings have been 
have been hurt. We've been wounded by each other, if we're honest. And Paul recognizes that tendency to hold on to those things, to try to retaliate, and he calls them to forgive. And he adds the extra impetus to forgive as Christ forgave you. Don't hold on to those things. Don't be begrudging like that, that servant, right, who's forgiven the great debt and then goes out and throttles somebody who owed him five bucks, right? But to, to bear in mind what we have been forgiven and be willing to extend that grace and forgiveness to others. Instead of gratifying every sexual impulse, we should exercise self-control over our bodies. Into chapter 5 there, verses 3 and following. And instead of getting drunk with alcohol, we should be under the influence of the Spirit. Chapters 5, verses 15 and following. And Paul expounds on what that would look like from a positive standpoint. That we would be, if we are influenced by the Spirit, we would be characterized by singing and joy. Be characterized by gratitude and characterized by submission. Christians are people who are under authority, primarily under the authority of Christ, right? Paul makes that connection for them. Wives, submit to your husbands as you do to the Lord. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Slaves, obey your masters just as you would obey Christ. So one of the marks of a a believer who's indwelt by the Spirit of God, who's under the authority of Christ, is that they're functioning under authority ultimately God's authority but also the human authorities that God has established so these are countercultural ways of thinking and living but Paul calls them to uh, a new ethic because they are a new creation and then finally he urges them to stand firm to put on the armor of God We're familiar with this passage, right? The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of God's peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit. Paul is specifically urging them to stand in regards to the unity of the church. Again, I think he's still calling them to unity. They've been adopted into God's family, and I want you to live like it. And he's given them instructions on how to pursue unity, how to live at peace in God's family. And now he's urging them to be very vigilant about this. The enemy is out to disrupt the unity of the church. Uh, matter of fact, Paul already made one reference to Satan earlier in chapter 4, verse 27. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath, and don't give the, the devil a foothold. Right? Satan is looking for opportunity to turn that anger into bitterness and to drive a wedge between two people, two brothers and sisters in the, in the family of God. This is what Satan is about. And so when Paul says, stand firm, put on the armor of God, be vigilant, he's talking about being vigilant to guard the unity of the church. And he closes that section there after describing the armor by encouraging them to pray for one another. So stand firm. Don't give up on this task. It is brutal. If you really commit yourself to pursuing and fostering and reconciling and 
building up unity, strengthening bonds. Uh, it's hard. It's really hard. Uh, but it is the key battleground in the church. We must contend. We are, there is warfare going on here. And we must contend if we are going to preserve the unity of God's people. So God has adopted us into his family and expects us to live as his children. Paul closes with a brief purpose statement regarding Tychicus. Uh, he says that he's sending Tychicus so that the church would be encouraged. I think even there, Paul's modeling what he's been talking about. He is concerned about the welfare of the church. So much so that he's penned a letter, he's sent Tychicus hundreds of miles so that the church would be encouraged. Uh, Paul wasn't just thinking of himself, he was thinking of them. And this is what we are called to, not just to do what's best for us, but to do what's best for us. Uh, not just what's best for me, but what's best for, for us.